Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. You know what my favorite part about strolling down this alley is? Junior's being right there? No, although the cheesecake is amazing. The theater shop that's over there? No, but again, that is another fabulous place full of great memorabilia from the Great White Way. I don't know then. What? It's the one place in the entire theater district that you can come, and it's a little more peaceful, a little more secluded, and the best part... You can look up and down it, and across the wall of the two theaters, the Schubert and the Booth, are posters from all the shows that are currently playing. You know, that really is a great thing. Schubert Alley really is a wonderful place. And as we come to the end of it, we arrive at our theater this evening, the Schubert itself. After you. Thank you. Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hilarious hit show, Spamalot. So hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Today we take you back to Finland, I mean New York City, in the year 2005. It was at this time that the British comedy group Monty Python would arrive on Broadway. So grab your coconuts and let's saddle forth into our story. pressed to find somebody who doesn't know the tale of Spamalot. It was lovingly ripped off from the internationally renowned and dare I say cult classic, the 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Both shows are a parody of the King Arthur stories from the matter of Britain. In being so well known, it was quite a difficult task bringing this beloved tale to the stage. The bar couldn't be higher, but the team tasked with this Uh, was up for the challenge. The show arrived on Broadway at the Schubert Theater on March 17, 2005. It was directed by Mike Nichols. It came with music by John Duprez and Eric Idle. Eric Idle would also write the lyrics and the book. The choreographer for the show will sound familiar to you as it was the same one from our previous episode, Casey Nicola. It was actually his Broadway debut as a choreographer. The set design was by Tim Hatley, as well as the costumes. Lighting was by Hugh Vanstone. Sound by Acme Sound Partners. Hair by David Brian Brown. Special effects by Gregory Meat. And projections by Elaine J. McCarthy. 
Interestingly, Eric Idle, who was the main creator of the show, was originally a player in Monty Python and originated the role of the narrator. It is also worth noting that John Cleese, one of the original players in the Monty Python troupe, recorded the voice of God for the musical. With the amazing talent of both the creative team and fantastic cast, the show would go on to be a hit. It received 14 Tony nominations and would gallop away with three. It would win Best Musical, Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical for Sarah Ramirez, and Best Direction of a Musical for Mike Nichols. The show would also win the Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album. After playing 1,575 performances, Spamalot would finally close on January 11, 2009. So without further ado, let's head into the forest in search of that shrubbery. I, I mean, story. The pre-show starts with a recording that lets the audience know if they let your cell phones and pages ring willy-nilly, there are heavily armed knights on stage that may drag you on stage and impel you. The show starts with a historian who narrates a brief overview of medieval England. In a miscommunication between the actors and the narrator, the actors start the show by singing an introductory song about Finland. The fish lapping song. The historian is irritated and tells the frolicking Finns that he was speaking about England, not Finland. The scene immediately changes to a dreary dark village with monks in hooded robes, chanting Latin and hitting themselves with books. We then see King Arthur traveling around the land with his servant, Patsy, who follows him around banging two coconut shells together to make the sound of a horse galloping. Arthur rides around trying to recruit knights for his round table to join him in Camelot. He encounters a pair of sentries who are more interested in debating whether two swallows could successfully carry a coconut rather than listening to the king. We, the audience... Then come across Sir Robin and Sir Lancelot, who are collecting plague victims. It is worth noting that Sir Lancelot is a handsome, incredibly violent man. The two meet as Lancelot attempts to dispose of the sickly, not-dead Fred. Though he is a plague victim, the man insists that he is not dead yet because he can sing and dance. He and Robin sing he is not dead yet. Not Dead Fred completes his dance number only to be hit in the head with a shovel and killed by an impatient Lancelot. Sir Robin and Sir Lancelot agree to enlist and become knights of the round table together. Meanwhile, Arthur attempts to convince a peasant named Dennis Galahad that he, Arthur, is king of England because the Lady of the Lake gave him Excalibur, the sword only given to the man fit to rule England. But Dennis and his mother, Mrs. Galahad, are political radicals and deny that any king whom has not been elected by the people has no legitimate right to rule over them. To settle the issue, Arthur has the Lady of the Lake and her Laker girls appear to turn Dennis into a knight. Cheered on by the Laker girls, 
The Lady of the Lake turns Dennis into Sir Galahad, and together they sing a generic Broadway love song, the song that goes like this. They are joined by Sir Robin, Sir Lancelot, a new knight, Sir Bedivere, and Sir, not appearing in the show, who resembles Don Quixote, who apologizes and then leaves. Together, they make up the Knights of the Round Table. The five knights gather in Camelot, a deliberately anarchistic place that resembles the Las Vegas Camelot-inspired Excalibur Resort, complete with showgirls, oversized dives, and the Lady of the Lake headlining the castle in full Liza Minnelli diva outfit. In the midst of their revelry, they are contacted by God, who tells them to locate the Holy Grail. After being urged by the Lady of the Lake, the knights set off. They travel throughout the land until they reach a castle, only to be viciously taunted by rude French soldiers. The group tries to retaliate by sending a large wooden rabbit, think Trojan horse, into the castle. They realize after the fact that instead of leaving the rabbit and walking away, they should have hidden inside the rabbit. The men defeated hurry and leave as the French are beginning to taunt them again, this time sending can-can dancers after them and throwing barnyard animals at them via catapult. Particularly sheep. Arthur and company manage to get safely to the wings before the French catapult the Trojan rabbit at them and end at one. Act two starts with Sir Robin and his minstrels following King Arthur and Patsy into a dark and extremely expensive forest where they are separated. King Arthur meets the terrifying but silly knights who say, Ni! who demand a shrubbery. King Arthur is in despair about finding one, but Patsy cheers him up, singing, Always look on the bright side of life. And they find a shrubbery shortly after. Sir Robin, meanwhile, has been wandering the forest for some time with his minstrels. Brave Sir Robin is what they are singing when they encounter the Black Knight who scares him off. King Arthur, who happens in on the scene, more or less defeats the Black Knight by cutting off both his arms and legs, impaling him uh, in his still-alive torso to a door, and leaves to go give the knights their shrubbery. The knights accept the shrubbery, but demand that King Arthur put on a musical and bring it to Broadway, or wherever the show may be playing, implying that it need only be a Broadway-style show, not an Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, the mere mention of this name forces everyone to cover their ears and scream in pain. Sir Robin, whom has found Arthur, insists that it would be impossible for them to accomplish this next task, since you need Jews for a successful Broadway musical. He proves his point by singing You Won't Succeed on Broadway, which is a large production number filled with Fiddler on the Roof parodies, including a bottle dance scene with grails instead of bottles uh, and the Laker girls. This leads King Arthur and Patsy off on their search for the Jews. The scene shifts to the lady in the lake lamenting about her lack of stage time, singing Whatever Happened to My Part? Sir Lancelot then receives a letter from what he assumes is a young damsel in distress. When he arrives, he is thrown off by the damsel being an effeminate young man named Prince Herbert. Prince Herbert's father is an overbearing, music-hating king of Swamp Castle, who is forcing Herbert in an arranged marriage. 
As Herbert is asking Lancelot to help him escape, the Queen of Swamp, excuse me, the King of Swamp Castle cuts the rope that Herbert is using to climb out the window, causing him to fall to his apparent death. Lancelot is puzzled by the king's actions, but then Herbert appears, having been saved at the last minute by Lancelot's sidekick, Concord. The king asks how his son was saved, which Herbert replies to happily with a song. Outraged, the king charges at his son with a spear, preparing to kill him. Lancelot steps in to save him, then gives a tearful and heartfelt speech about sensitivity to the king on Herbert's behalf. Lancelot is outed as a homosexual in the process and is then celebrated in an announcing wild disco number. Back to King Arthur, who is giving up hope on putting on a Broadway musical, laments that he is all alone, even though Patsy has literally been with him the entire time. The Lady of the Lake appears and tells Arthur that he and the knights have been in a Broadway musical all along. Patsy also reveals himself as half-Jewish, but didn't want to say anything to Arthur because that's not really the sort of thing you say to a heavily armed Christian. At this point, all that's left is for King Arthur to find the grail and marry someone. After picking up on some not-too-subtle hints, Arthur decides to marry the Lady of the Lake after he finds the grail. After being reunited with his knights, Arthur meets Tim the Enchanter, who warns them of the danger of a killer rabbit. Just then, the rabbit bites a knight's head off, and Arthur uses the holy hand grenade of Antioch on it. This knocks down a nearby hill and reveals the evil rabbit is actually a puppet controlled by a surprised puppeteer. A large stone block showing a combination of letters and numbers is so revealed. Usually, the number and letters are based on the seat numbering system of the theater. After pondering the final clue, Arthur admits that they are a bit stumped with the clue thing and God, and asks God to give them a hand. At this point, a large hand from above points to the audience, and Arthur realizes that the letters and numbers refer to a seat number in the audience. The grail is found under the seat, and the person sitting in the seat is rewarded with a small trophy and a Polaroid photo. Arthur marries the Lady of the Lake, who reveals that her name is Guinevere. Lancelot marries Herbert, and Sir Robin decides to pursue a career in musical theater. Herbert's Herbert's father attempts to stop the finale and end all the bloody singing, but is hit over the head by a shovel by Lancelot. The show ends with always look on the bright side of life and a company bow. So now we're going to discuss this show, this hilarious farciful show. And I think a great place to start is the costumes, which are very Monty Python-esque. I mean, it's almost copy and pasted from the television show. Um, There's a few, like Lancelot's, um, and during A Bright Side of Life, that are a little bit glitzed and glammed up for Broadway, but on the whole... Or the Laker Girls is also, like, glitzed and glammed. But, like, for the most part, like, the Knights, like, it looks like the classic 19... late 60s, early 70s movie, you know? Um, Which... 
I think it's fantastic. I mean, you should, you definitely wanted to bring it into the new millennium, but it still needed an era of familiarity. Um, it's just clever. They're, mm-hmm. they're, it's simple. It's clever. It's fabulous. Right. Well, and I love that the set looked very like cartoon-like to the regular eye. But um, if you're a Monty Python fan, it was very resembling of the show. Um, and one of the things that I love about it is it, it kind of has like this scrapbook kind of feel to it. Yes, yes. Um, which is definitely very Monty Python. The One of my favorite things um, <clears throat> at the end of Act 2 when they're launching things at them. So this is one of the first shows I saw that had like really detailed projections. They obviously didn't shoot sheep into the audience, but seeing the sheep fly um, from the back of the stage on, you know, I was just like, hee hee, sheep. I, it was brilliant, you know. Um, I thought that was just hilarious. And it was like, it wasn't like, um, what am I thinking? Like the really high end, great graph. I mean, this was meant to look like cheap graphics. And that's that's where the humor derives from, you know. It wasn't meant to look expensive. It's supposed to look like comedy on a budget. And it did so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of comedy on a budget, anybody out there who knows Monty Python knows that, you know, you could get the cheapest joke in the world by going to your local grocery store and buying a coconut. <laughs> I mean, from the coconuts to this cheap little plastic holy grail to this, when they find the shrubbery, it's just someone sticking a small, like, chia plant from the wing and, oh, look, a shrubbery, you know. Um, and, the, oh, my gosh, the way when they chop the knight's arms and that off – you know, it's not this like we're gushing blood that the arm just like falls off and he's got like tinsel blood, yeah, streaming out and it's so low budget and it's so funny. Like that that's a win to me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can keep something so simple, but at the same time make it make it that successful. I mean, the audience like from the get go was told like, hey, suspend your disbelief, like. We're making things up, and it pays off tenfold. They, they don't try to reinvent the wheel. They're not trying to win over people who are going to the theater for high art. They're basically just like, we know how silly this is. We know what our, um, we know what our crowd is. We know our audience, and here it is. We're going to make sheep jokes and bunny jokes and shrub jokes, and this is going to be the kind of humor. And if you're coming to the theater for a night of high art, Lincoln Center Theater's, you know, 30 blocks uptown, enjoy. This was like a great night at the pub, you know, being regaled by drunks about former quests. Uh, and I mean, it, and I mean that in the best way. It was just pure nonsense. and It was a blast. Um, there's a story there, but not necessarily one that's going to change the world, you know. Um, and, and to me, that's just it's an example of another great show that its purpose is for an, ex, uh, uh, an escape, an escape. Exactly. Um now that we've delved into the story of the show, let's just wrap up this portion with a, a few fun facts about it. So Spamalot has featured several fantastic leading men, including Tim Curry, Christopher Seaver, David High Pierce, and Christian Burrell, who, oh my gosh, <laughs> his role was like, you know, it, it was like not even like a featured position, but oh, Sarah Ramirez's character, the Lady of the Lake, sang the line, I've got no Grammy, no reward. I've got no Tony award. But after the actress won the Tony and the show won the Grammy, they had to change the line in the Divas Lament to, All our Tony awards won't keep me out of Betty Ford's. 
referencing the residential treatment center in Rancho Mirage, California. In 2011, the UK commemorated the show with a royal stamp. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And finally, the show marked the first production by the Monty Python troupe to grace the Great White Way. Uh, One more fun and quirky thing. Um, As we were doing our research, I pulled out my playbill from the show. And in the actual Broadway playbill, as you open it and you read it and you see the ads for Bloomingdale's and you know, Ford or Mercedes or whatever, you, you're going in it. Um, there's information about the wrong show that's interjected in the show. Of course, the show about Finland. Uh, it's the show, uh, let's see, the sh- there's a whole section up front about Dick Odd Trianonen Full, or Finns Ain't What They Used To Be. It comes <laughs> complete with song numbers and cast bios. And I feel like that's such a Monty Python thing. Like, I was just looking through it, and I was like, oh, here we go. Here's the, here's all the information on the show. And I was like, wait, that's not the right show. What? what? And then shortly after you get past that, sure enough, there's all the information on Spamalot. And I was like, this, you know, it's four pages. I'm sure it costs the producers quite a bit of extra money for those four pages. But it's just those little details that they put in there. That it's subtlety that a Monty Python fan would love. So let's talk about the impact of that this show has had on theater and its history. We say it time and again, I feel like every episode, but look, it brought a new group of audience goers or theater goers, to the theater. And that's the Monty Python fans. Uh, and it possibly, possibly introduced the live theater to a whole new generation who, we knew them in school, they just, they watched nothing but Monty Python and they were making mm-hmm. all the references and you're like, that's cute, you know. They came to the theater and they saw this and, and, and mm-hmm. saw their favorite show in a different art form. Well, and I think that, you know, this time in Broadway history was really just about, let's get silly, let's, be entertained, especially if you look at the time frame. This is, you know, shortly after, you know, 9-11. And so, you know, we're looking for some fun. Right. And I think all, I mean, there's some great jokes in there that everybody walks away with. And in fact, I was just thinking about Herbert. (laughs) (laughs) I just laugh at that um, where he, you know, the music starts up and you never actually hear Herbert sing. He goes to sing, and then you see his dad just walk on. Stop that! Stop that! Stop that singing! Stop that music right now! Stop it! And, you know, just these silly little quirks that come out. And I'm like, where else have we seen that in theater since then? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's where I go back to. I think about since I've seen Spamalot, all the different shows that I've seen that I'm like, I've seen this, this bit before. You know, I've seen bits in, in the play that goes wrong. That I've done that. Um, I've seen a couple of bits in, in Beetlejuice. Um, I'm really starting to rack my brain right now on the fly. But, you know, I, I think there's a lot of musical theater out there that is, that's really used. It. Oh, uh, um, The Mystery of Edwin Drood used a bit of it. So I think that it's brilliant that they were able to do that. And to kind of tie back to what you're saying, I, you're right. It was an escape show for the time we were in. This is going to sound weird to say because I think we've all become so comfortable and numb to it, but this show opened 
shortly, well, not necessarily shortly, but when we were in the midst of war, we were at war with Iraq and Afghanistan. And for a lot of people, this is the first long-term major war that we had seen or we had experienced, you know. Prior to that, of course, we had the Gulf, we had the Gulf War uh, back in the 90s. But that, of course, that was, you know, I think a few weeks. Oh, man, I'm, I'm going to be really embarrassed because I, I, if it's longer or shorter, showing my historical knowledge here. But, you know, and then, of course, before that um, was Vietnam. Um, so, you know, this is the first extensive war that a lot of people, especially our age, had experienced. We were looking for an escape, and I think Spamalot really provided it. Um, even though there, there is some subject matter of war, of course, between the British and the French, it's just silly. I wish all wars were, like, fought that way, you know? We could just launch sheep at each other. Uh, not literal sheep, but, you know, I don't know, put those sheep from the Serta mattress commercial. It's like, <laughs> man, it just, ah, mattresses! There. We'll, launch, just, we'll just launch wool. We'll just, just giant bales of wool or just mattresses at each other, okay? We're <laughs> going to just go. out-nap each you know, other if in you've never, wars. If you have never thrown a mattress out a window, that is cathartic enough. There probably wouldn't even be war. If people did that. Maybe everyone's just angry because they don't get enough sleep. Anybody thought of that? Right. Just you know, if anyone that. wants to sponsor us, we could insert a commercial here about this mattresses. This brought to you by Purple Mattresses. Purple Mattresses because you is tired. <laughs> so let's talk about if the show's relevant. Again, it, it's like a, a bar story. It's mm. just a good, fun tale It's a classic tell. tale. We all know it. It's a variation of King Arthur that's just a hoot. Also, it's a great way to introduce or pass on one of the greatest comic groups of all time, Monty Python. I mean, I think that their comedy can be somewhat dated. You know, some of their jokes. I, I, I've, I've been recently watching Monty, Poth- bleh, Monty Python on Netflix, and I do look at some of their humor from the 60s, you know, and it's a little sexist, a little out there. <laughs> yeah, a little. But, you know, at the same time, I'm like, I recognize that it's from that time. And there are a lot of jokes and quirks in that that still, you know, to me re- uh, resonate. The Ministry of Silly Walks and, you know, this parrot is dead. I mean, they've got so many bits that carry on. You know, this is from my dad's generation. I'm sure that, you know, my niece and nephew could watch that and still laugh at it. You know, that's three, four generations. Um, Again, for a modern audience, it can always be relevant as it provides an escape. But, I mean, I really don't think that there's necessarily, like, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not doing this show for a deep, profound, emotional response. I don't know that it's... It's high art that's going to inspire people to go out and create. I genuinely think that the best purpose it serves, and I think it's an important purpose, truly is take the night off, go have a good time. and mm-hmm. Which is why it's great for like regional or, you know, small, like not smaller stages, but you know, like, like not... Not like Broadway where everyone like makes these giant travels to, but like, you know. Your regional houses. Your, or your community theaters. Houses. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that I love about this show is, this is the thing. Not all theater has to be high art that challenges you and makes you think. Because at the end of the day, if we're, those shows make you work, and, and that's good. That, that is good. But sometimes you really just want to go to the theater, and, and as it was for the majority of the stuff that came before and escape it's an enter- it's entertainment at the end of the day you want to be entertained and sometimes it's what we all need and now more than ever that's what we all need um 
and getting to have that communal live entertainment where we're all laughing at the same thing. Yes. And what's even better sometimes is because it's such a following. It's a, it's a niche following in the Monty Python. The people that are getting the inside jokes that lead other people to laugh and you have that moment of, I'm not sure why I'm laughing, but there is something funny. Mm-hmm. And someone goes and looks up that Monty Python and goes, oh, the rabbit with the teeth. And they go, that's even funnier now. I think that's important, and I think that's why it also makes the show relevant. It still could let it... I think it still got some juice left in it. For a mainstream Broadway show, I just don't know that... Uh, Should we be reviving it on Broadway? To me, it's six. It could go either way. I think it'll be successful either way. I yeah. think there's still uh, enough of a following. That's fair. Well, as promised, we want to share with you some of our personal stories about experiencing the show. So I've seen the show twice, uh, once back in 2006 on Broadway, and then once in 2009 here in Salt Lake City. And I've seen the show once in Salt Lake City in 2009. So I think I've got kind of the stories to tell then. I mean, listen, there was a time where I was not as into theater and then I met Andrew and I was into theater. I mean, look, to be fair, uh, when I saw the show on Broadway, you were still in high school. Right? So were you. Yes. Oh, no, you were in middle school at this point. Yeah, I was in middle school. We haven't, we haven't met yet. You know. Yeah. You know, tune into <laughs> our side podcast to hear the story of our life. But anyway... <laughs> This is another show I saw on uh, my high school trip of 2006, Memories. And um, I have a couple of good memories with this. So I had a phenomenal, phenomenal um, high school theater teacher. Um, this was her last hurrah. She actually had just retired. Um, it was an unfortunate situation. She was forced in retirement. Our school district was going through budget cuts. Um, side note real quick, we need to pay our teachers more. Uh, they they deserve it. The arts matter. Um, and this was a really sad situation because um, th- my teacher, Mrs. Adams, she wanted to, I think she had like five more years ago, she was going to teach. She had these great shows lined up. And then because of budget cuts, her and several other teachers at my school were given the option of either taking early retirement or just kind of deuces because of how long they've been there and what their salary was. And that was messed up. But she took the early retirement, and I was bummed because that meant I wouldn't have her for my senior year. So, Mrs. Adams, if you're listening, I love you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for inspiring me to go into theater. You're amazing. Back to the story. Um, we took a trip to New York. Um, so this is shortly after she retired. We're in New York. And um, being from Utah, my theater teacher is LDS, sweetest woman in the world. And I just remember... Um, this show really did offend her. In fact, at the end of the first act, um, the French are flipping off the British and they're stroking their fingers in very provocative ways. And I just look over and Mrs. Adams is just like appalled. And I was like, oh, oh, because for those of you who aren't from here in Utah, I mean, it's funny that Utahns are just very much into Monty Python. But at the same time, if you know Monty Python, it's kind of like, really? I... Ooh, that's kind of a blue troop. They they don't. It's not family friendly. So I thought she she would have known, but it it cracked me up. You know, at the end of the day, she was she was cool, but you could tell she was uncomfortable and offended. Um, I remember 
I mean, I can close my eyes and I can see it. I remember everything about the theater that night. I can still see the way the theater looked. I can still see the set, the cartoon clouds that were hanging on wire, swinging because the air conditioner was blowing on the set. I can remember everything, you know. If if I was a good painter, I could paint that, you know. Um, I, at first, remember the lead actor in the middle of the show forgetting his lines, stopping the orchestra, and asking to, to, he said, listen, 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 I, I don't want to ruin this. Let's start this number over again. And I thought that he had messed up. And I thought, we paid this much money, and this professional is going to mess up a line and demand a restart? Like, no. Well, when we saw it again here in Salt Lake, I found out that it's a bit. And I was like, oh, that's clever, you know. So knock one against me. But that's the kind of jokes and pratfall that they played in the show. Um, and it was the first time after the show um, that I got to meet two of my favorite actors. Um, Christopher Sieber, who played uh, Sir Dennis Galahad, the Black Knight and Prince Herbert's father. You know, no, no, stop that music. And Christian Burrell, who played historian, not dead Fred, French guard, minstrel, and Herbert. Um, and they are two of the, truly, they are two of the kindest people ever. Um, I have since had the honor of seeing both of those gentlemen um, in other Broadway productions. Uh, Chris Receiver actually at the Schubert Theater again later on at Matilda, um, which we'll discuss in a later episode. But they really were, they were so kind. They, they signed the program that I had. Um, and seeing where their careers have gone, it's just you never know who you're gonna meet who you're gonna meet doing one thing one day and where they're gonna go. But uh, to those two gentlemen, thank you so much for your kindness. They were they were wonderful. And they were wonderful to see on stage. Um, they were so funny and so talented. As things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see the show again. Hopefully, you'll be able to catch Spamalot at a regional house near you this fall. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. I'll wrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Music for Wildlife by Fox. Other music on this episode provided by The Good Lords, Music for Wildlife, John Bartman, The Joy Drops, Mize Darling, and Billy Murray. <laughs>